Welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land where I live, the Biripai people, and all other First Nations people within Australia. I aim to bring you collaborative conversations, cross-pollinating as we span our wings, connecting the threads of ancestral wisdom in a modern context so that we can live a nurtured life. I believe ancestral wisdom provides a roadmap to a regenerative culture, contributing to thriving communities, healing and health. The gorgeous little song that you heard in the intro and the outro is called The Littlest Birds. It was performed by the Oluca family band from the Olive Gap Farm. It was originally performed by the Be Good Tanyas and generously sponsored by the Olive Gap Farm, which is a certified organic family farm specialising in small batch native essential oils and seasonal cut flowers. I highly recommend checking out their tea tree oil online. They are located on Bundjalung country in the northern rivers of New South Wales, Australia and draw on inspiration from various sustainable farming practices to create a high quality product that's equally nourishing to us and the earth. You can check out links to their website and social media in the show So I've got Rama Yelua Adeji. Adeji, I'm gonna. Oh, I didn't get that right. <laughs> Rama, help me. <laughs> it's Rama Yelua Adeji. Okay, that was close. That was close. <laughs> yes. So um, I've been following Rama on Instagram, and I'm sure people, a lot of people, relate to this. Like as we're out there in social media world, it can be all-consuming and distracting, but. The thing that I'm loving about social media is these beautiful little connections from all over the world with people that I'm just sort of drawn to. And when they speak, it might be from a completely different worldview to mine, but it just rings really true and calls me in and I feel connected. So I reach out and then these little connections and conversations. Hi, Rama's little ones there. Um, Yes, start to form and then over time, it's like you've almost made this virtual friend. So Rama is one of those people. And Rama is a wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, teacher, doula, storyteller, and Nigerian woman currently living in Abuja. But uh, she might tell you a little bit about, yeah, her history of how she's lived in various places in Nigeria. And, yeah, after just kind of following and having a few little chats with Rama over... I don't know, many, 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 many months now, I felt called to um, ask Rama to come onto the podcast. And at that time, um, I didn't know, but it has turned out that the timing is, as Rama's coming on, she's just started the innate postpartum training, which is super exciting, as many of you know I did also. So, um, yeah, lots to share. Hey. (laughs) So thanks so much for being here, Rama. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honoured to be here. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to just start by checking in to see how you are, your family, um, and just a bit of your perspective on the current world events. Like, we're living in really full-on times, and I'm sure that's different for everyone all over the world. 
Um, I'm very well, thank you. My family is fine and safe and healthy, thankfully. Uh, yes, there's a lot of panic even over here. It's interesting that I live in Abuja currently and I am from the northern part of Nigeria. So occasionally I do travel home. And, uh, you know, when, when I go out of my door here in Abuja, it like you see masks and everywhere you're about to go in, there's sanitizer, there are people taking your temperatures and everything. And recently I traveled for E to where I'm from, my village is in Kebi State. And the farther I went away from the center, the less masks I saw, the less sanitizers I saw. And when I finally got to my village, there were no masks inside. When I got there, I was wearing a mask. And the first thing my cousin said when he saw me, he said, you better take that off because they will think you have Corona. And so... <laughs> So it was, it was so interesting that, you know, over there, and, you know, uh, I went back home. I have cousins that live here in Abuja as well. And when we got back home, we all had sanitizers with those, like, city folk. And we came with our sanitizers and our masks. And they basically teased those things back into our boxes. We had to put them away because they're like, we don't need these. There's no corona here. And I think that, you know, the food is different. We, I think that the food is more wholesome back there. There's more... Um, there's more um, tonics that people take. There's more infusions that people take. And so we're having a, a conversation even with one of um, my sisters in the village. And she was like, oh, you know, it's possible that there are people that have had corona, but they don't, like, it's been healed because uh, I guess the lifestyle is different. People walk more, people eat better. There's more... Um, herbs and plants available people trust in nature more but in the city is different like we're all different people from different places and we live a different lifestyle anyway so yeah it's it's been very interesting with our government it almost seems like there's no plan it's just like okay let's go back indoors and then it's like is it safe okay we recently i read in the news that they said they were extending the lockdown and someone asked oh we're on lockdown it was really surprising because we we're not aware there was a lockdown <laughs> but yeah the only people affected right now are schools. Schools are out. And um, so, you know, the children are home and we're not sure where to go, where it's safe and all of that. But I think that we've gone back to business as usual. We have masks now. We're more conscious when we're outside. But it's business as usual, really. Okay, interesting. That's all so interesting to hear. And, um, yeah, amazing that as you went back, people the change so for people listening abuja is the capital city is that right in yes it is Nigeria. yeah and then you yeah your home village is quite small so as you went out to a small and smaller village yeah. um to the tonics and then the tonics became yeah people were talking about that and using that more and that i guess that knowledge is still there because the further you move away from the city the less access to uh, uh, doctors and and medical centers and that sort of thing they're smaller they would be smaller there yeah i almost feel like it, it's quite different here in australia but there's a similarity in the sense that when you're in the city there's more people wearing masks more people being careful and i guess with density there's more spread and then once of you course. go into the country towns i live in like a fairly small country town and where i actually live is outside of my town so there's probably like eight streets <laughs> where I live. And, um, you know, there's mountains and a river down the road. And so there's fresh air and we're all spread out and that sort of thing. So, yeah, you're not like in a mall or, or crammed in public transport. That's so interesting. I, I love that your cousin was like, quick, you better take that mask off. <laughs> oh, thanks for sharing that. And I'm glad you're all well. So, yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit about... Um, how you came to be interested in working with mothers and babies and doula work um so often actually this is just can you hear me sorry <laughs> no don't be sorry it's fine i can cut and edit and it's all good um yeah so i'm just interested in a little bit about how you were called to be to doula work hey hey <laughs> often <laughs> don't don't worry this is great i had one podcast actually where um my partner was here and he had the kids but they all ran in and it was just so distracting but you know it's real life and it's very relevant to this question so often when i ask people about why they were called to work with mothers and doula work is because they're a mother 
and they had their own yeah. experience and I know that's true for me like my own postpartum experiences made me think there has to be a better way for this mm -hmm. even though it's not the worst it's got to yeah. be a lot better surely and then you know you start looking and so yeah I'd love to hear from you about how um, how you came to this work and your experience and why um yeah why you've been drawn to it um okay so it, it, it definitely started with the birth of my children. Um, I did, I had my daughter six years ago, almost six years ago. And um, I lost my mom about, my mother about um, 12 years ago. So when I got married, um, when I when I started having children, I didn't, my mother wasn't around. Now, culturally, what we do is that um, the mother the mother or um, somebody from the mother's side, like when you have your first child, normally you would either go home and um, you go back to your parents' house, have your child, and then stay for the first 40 days. And so you're in the house and um, you're, you're nourished and taken care of. And so what would happen is that, and what I witnessed, what I, what I saw being done for my cousins and other family, or how it was done anyway, was that um, they would be home and the mother literally did nothing. All she had to do was, um, there was someone that came to bathe the mother and then bathe the baby and there will be food um there's always constant food there's you know there's pap or porridge there's soups and it's just um it's constantly available and all you need to do is nurse your baby and stay with your baby and you're supposed to rest and so you know that was the culture but then um i i got married and um my mother wasn't there so when i had my baby um i was i stayed home in my own house and uh i had an aunt come over but you know my I, my partner my husband also is from another culture we have a lot of cultures in nigeria there's the Hausa, there's the yoruba you know and so he's yoruba and they do have it was well thank you and they do have um we have similar cultures but they're executed differently and so you know my auntie came around my mother-in-law came around and i think there was a bit of a toggle you know there's all of that like there's a bit of drama a lot of drama really and um so that happened and i think that i i sunk in that period i didn't really know that there was a problem but there was a problem i just wasn't aware of it and then six years later i had my second baby and and um and you know i was like oh i've learned all my lessons from the first time i'm going to you know, <laughs> do it better this time around and everything and we did do it better in some ways but you know there were still um interesting incidents and I, I feel like it could have been better and uh i think i was having a conversation and i kept looking at uh okay the function of my aunt why she was supposed to be here and you know the function of the women around me that was supposed to support us so i wouldn't say uh and then eventually i learned about doulas and postpartum doulas and i was like oh okay that makes a lot of sense but you know i i, I appreciate the fact that I, in our culture we do have doulas they're called um Ngozuma in Hausa, right? We do have doulas, but I think that their their function, should I say, their function is almost reduced. Because I do honestly remember, even me, the first time I had my baby, you know, and I was in the hospital and I was reading and I was on baby center and I was reading all of these books, what to expect when you're expecting all of that. I felt armed and prepared. And so when we were leaving the hospital and the doctor would say, oh, don't take hot water. It's not necessary. Don't do this. Don't do that. And so I'll go home and my auntie would say, hot water. I'll say, no, the doctor said no. And, you know, I was, I was like this <laughs> authority on my own. And I'm like, the doctor said, and there was a lot of, even I had, you know, and um, the second time I realized that, yeah, hot water, that's not a bad idea. I do need hot water and I do need warming foods and I do need these things because then I'll hide and drink cold water and I'll be like, and they say, don't drink cold water. I guess uh, we have our cultural practices, they're very important, but what I've learned is that our why has disappeared. And with the disappearance of our why and medicine, it's almost a clash so you have to choose to either do it do what the doctors say or do what the tradition says there's nowhere that they meet in between and so of course everybody is pulled and drawn in different um 
in different ways and the moms are suffering the women are suffering and also I, I was in the classroom I was teaching actually before I had my daughter and you know I mean once you're a teacher you love those children they become yours and you know you're you're very connected with them and I could tell I could tell the troubled ones I could tell what they were lacking and I knew where the problem was from a lot of times you know you can tell that there's the family situation and all of that so it wasn't just me suffering even with my students I could tell that their mothers were struggling their families were struggling and it just felt like yeah this I should definitely want to do more about this we have we have a system but we need to elevate it and we've gotten to a point where we 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 don't believe in our system sort of because you know uh, there was i did the grandmother's healing hands um herbs and um herbs course one time it was black by a black american a southerner and she was so interested in reconnecting with her her roots and she's in america i don't think she's been in Nigeria, africa once but you know she was she's very interested in that whereas we're in africa and we're, we're so detached from our roots we're we're trying to get as far away from what is local or traditional you know and it's interesting of course there are people that are when i say we are awakening and um looking at the value in our systems as well and our wise and so I, I guess I'm just part of that revival mm, yeah so interesting well first of all I'm really sorry to hear about your mother and I know um from having friends who've had similar experiences and uh for myself my mother hasn't passed but she w isn't present in my life so it, it brings up a lot when you become a mother if you don't have that presence of your own mother there's like this added layer of grief so thank you for sharing that because it yeah I understand that that would be really hard and it's yeah it's interesting to hear that also in Nigeria this is happening and so my mother-in-law is Filipino and I started to see how she also when she came to Australia she's first generation Australian she came here and then had her children very quickly she felt pressured to be like modern and let go of all those traditional aspects, even though she had her mum on the phone going, no, you can't have a shower after birth. Oh my goodness. Oh. And like, she was in trouble for, you know, getting up and not staying like warm or having a shower or whatever it was. And there's this real pressure to modernize because yeah, the doctors are telling you one thing and you're in the hospital, but then, yeah, like you said, we're all, all collectively as women and mothers going, wait a minute, this is not working. Mothers are suffering. Maybe there's something to that tradition. So how do we reconcile these worlds? How do we still have access to modern medicine but still reconcile these traditional practices? So that's interesting. So it generally in Nigeria it would be the mother or the aunties and the female relatives, but there's also sort of a role of the postpartum doula, is that right? Yes. Yes. Because um if you were in my culture, if you were to go back home, um in my village there are actually women that specifically come and bathe the mother. And you know, and there's the like there's the hot stone, the hot stone massage for the baby for the novel. So there are women that actually do that. Your mother could do that, or there could be women that primarily do that. You'll be home and they'll be hired to come home and do those things for you. So, yes. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think it's similar in a few countries. I think similar maybe sometimes in India, like the mothers and mother-in-law will do a lot of the caring, but there might be someone coming to do the massage. Or, mm -hmm. um, yes. Oh, right. And have you been able to reconnect with that knowledge uh, somewhat, especially when you go back to your village, or is it still, you're still learning and acquiring uh, yes, I, 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 I mean, it's something that I grew up with, you know, yeah. um, unconsciously it was something that I was around, even as a child, I, w I have been exposed to it. I just haven't looked at it like it was subconscious, but I haven't been conscious about it. And now I am conscious about it. And now I'm paying more attention. And now I'm asking more questions. And now I believe a little bit more. And so it's like, ah, I see. And I see the practices and I see how my babies were taken care of because my auntie did come around and, you know, she did try to do those things for my children. And um, I see the difference. Like even with my first baby, you know, with the baths, it's, it's, um, recently I found someone on, on, I think on YouTube that does um, baby yoga or something of that nature. 
And I was like, this is exactly the same way my baby was thrown. Right. <laughs> you know, and so um, I have reconnected. And then even because I'm asking now, now my family, they say, oh, I'm the, I'm the Omugo person. And Omugo is Igbo. It's the same as um, Ngozuma, which is what we call it in Hausa. But Omugo is like the person that takes care of babies. Like whenever I go home and they're like, I, and they see me with a book and they're like, mm, she's there doing her Omugo and everything. So I've almost, they've started identifying me in that role. And it's interesting because my dad's sister, when I started asking more, it turned out that my dad's sister was the first like midwife in our, in our village. Right. Wow. And so I'm I know and then I was like okay and I went and I sat with her and um so she's 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 a midwife she crossed between the traditional and went into midwifery and um yeah so I have been able to reconnect and I think people are willing to offer me information and tell me more and teach me people have been very open to me and my questions and my um curiosity so when my friend has a baby, I still have my friends could have a baby and I would go to visit them and I would sit to the person that have come to take care of them. I would sit to their moms and I would listen. And, you know, it's, it, I am reconnecting. I, I have, I have been connected with the culture for a while, but I am, I am consciously reconnecting with it and taking note of it and finding our ways. Cause you know, Unfortunately, also, because I don't know if I would say we're modern women, but we want to know why. And so sometimes when um, my friend had a baby and they say, oh, you have to take hot things. And she's like, no, the doctor said no. And I think I'm almost like the calm in between. I'm like, yeah, maybe, you know, and I try to explain a little bit of the why. And they're more at peace with knowing why. We're not opposed to doing those things, but we want to know why do you like, oh, no, I I have choice. And I want to be able to make uh, an informed decision. And I think that's a fair demand to to reconnect that why. Mm, yeah you touch on such important points because like you said you've just grown up with this as a cultural norm to a degree like you just saw it as a child so but it's those details and those whys that we yeah we're all questioning and I think I think that's healthy for any culture to sort of question the whys but not just disregard them because they might be seen as old-fashioned or traditional And we're kind of coming around to honour ancestral wisdom. Like there's a reason why those things were done. It's just we've lost those whys as we have all this other information that's happening in the modern world and exposure to so much. We want to check in and make sure this actually is the best thing for us. And I guess some things will, some things people might um, keep for themselves or choose not to do. And But, um, yeah, powerful role at at your time to be able to be in between and learn that language of why. And I think a lot of us called to postpartum work are working out that explaining why it's important to rest, you know, like your muscles are loose and open. Like we need to get you, your body coming back so that you don't prolapse or whatever it is, just those little practical things. Honestly, it's, it's, I mean, yes, explaining the why is a huge part of the job because I mean, we're seeing super women, women every day, you know, there's a, a maternity shoot tomorrow and the next day you have your baby and you bounce back. I mean, it's a thing, right? It's like snap back or like, what is it? mommy snap I don't but you know there are these things there's a culture and you see that somebody had like uh, a baby and a month later they've snapped back and they're all back and everything is in the right place and all of that and so there's also that culture that we've developed for ourselves and it's like having a baby is not limiting uh, I think unfortunately this the story around birth has has been almost crippling for women and so we've we didn't take strength in the need to rest and take care of ourselves, it almost seemed like a dysfunction, like, oh no, you can't do that. And so we proved that, no, we're actually powerful and we can do that. And even after having the baby, we'll spring back and we'll do everything that we, we've, we've forgotten to honor ourselves and not look at it as a disability, but as, you know, a coming, like a becoming and appreciating and respecting the time. So yes. There is a lot of explaining that comes with the territory. It's yeah. like, oh, you sound like a grandmother now. It's like, yeah, well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, trusting grandmother's wisdom. And also, 
really important it sounds like for where you are in Nigeria and I feel like a lot of countries in the world the knowledge is still there it's sort of on this precipice like on the edge of where it could get lost but it's not lost and it's it's being um, revived and reclaimed and sort of like what we spoke about Layla B at the beginning yes yes Yes. Yeah. So when, when I saw that, you know, she does revive, reclaim and distress, I said, yes, like those who I'm like, yes, exactly. And because I think that our culture is largely oral. We don't write, we don't document. And so a lot of things are passed on um, by word of mouth. And unfortunately, you know, even in the villages, sometimes we feel like, oh, we're too cool for this. So nobody wants to listen anymore. It's just the old folk that are dealing with this. And the younger people are not interested in, you know, stepping up the mantle and continuing the tradition. So yes, we are in this in-between space where it's like it's about to get lost or we really need to restore and um, revive it. Mm, yeah, amazing. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing that there and able to go out back to the villages as well and reconnect with um, that ancestral lineage with your, your dad's sister, your auntie, who was a midwife. How amazing. Yeah to know that, to kind of feel that running through your blood as well. It's, yes, it's, it's incredible, really. Mm. It's, it's, I, I, I'm honestly so honoured. Um, I have a friend also, her mom is a, is an herbalist and they live here in Abuja. And, you know, I've I, I, she's a mentor to me. I go over to her all the time. And, you know, when she discovers something, she's like, she sends, she, she asks them to send me a picture like, oh, this, this, this. I've had several lessons with her. She's shown me around, shown me plants because she has lots of them in her house. We, we do this lesson in house so sometimes I don't know how to translate like the names of the plants you know this is these are plants that are indigenous to us the plants that um our mothers have used that our, our mothers have used our ancestors have used and she's very much in tune with that so I am lucky and blessed in the fact that I can go home and learn these things and even here in the center and it's in, we actually happen to be from the same place so it's sort of like it's a continuation of those things it's it's wonderful. How amazing. How wonderful. I really hope this inspires people to do something similar, like to go to their their lineage or wherever they are and, and learn and, and retain that. Um, yeah, to pass on. And how amazing for your daughters as well and your children and grandchildren that, that you will have yes. reclaimed that. Um, and are you noticing as you're like looking into it, like through Layla B and I know you've only just started the innate postpartum care, but are you seeing a lot of similarities with the Nigerian postpartum care and the other world traditions? Yes. You know, um, like, I, like I have, I have been in a few conferences and in a few workshops and everything. I've learned about a few other traditions and every time I'm learning about them, um, I'm like, this is so interesting because these are the same things. Sometimes they're not exactly the same, but I recognize the need. And I'm like, okay, so this is done in India, especially in India because they have the, you know, the wife goes back home and everything. And I'm like, we do the same thing. And I realized that across the continent, we all have the same needs basically. And we're all meeting these needs in in different ways, but it's still the same. So, I, I, and I think that's why I was, I am comfortable enough to say, not appropriate, but learn from anybody because I think that is the human needs that we have and we're meeting the human needs. If I learned from, even the Mexican tradition is amazing. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is us. Like, this is what our people do. And it's funny because somehow um, with us here, we almost seek validation from outside. So when they say, oh, you know, in Mexico, they do this and they're like, really? And so there's a little bit more interest in, allowing yourself to go through that process. But I found connection with a lot of cultures all over the world. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm thrilled about with Innate is that um, she, she's not um, anchoring herself to a culture, but she's um, talking about the human needs. And I think that's something that I relate completely to, that they're human needs. Of course, what I take from that is what I can translate to my environment and the things that function where I am and are relevant to work to my people. So yes, I, I think that it's all connected. I, I have for a long time believed in the connection that our roots is not just where we are, we're all connected. Mm. Yeah, it's like there's these universal needs, but then there's the um, unique, amazing, beautiful cultural differences 
just mm-hmm. like all the amazing food around the world. It's sort of like that. Yes. There's a different flavor to that, but it's essentially nourishing. <laughs> yes, um, true. Exactly. Hey there, I'm Julia. I'm interrupting this podcast to let you know that if you are really enjoying this podcast, you'll probably really enjoy newborn mothers too. We provide online courses for professionals and mothers worldwide who believe birth is about making mums too. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Enjoy the rest of the show. So I really love uh, Rama, how you share about motherhood and you share from your belief system. So you follow, you're a Muslim woman, you follow Islam, is that right? Yes, I am. Yes. Um, yes I am. And so you talk a little bit about that through and I kind of feel, I don't ever feel like it's a, a dominant force in what you're sharing, but it's just this really beautiful, like you're sharing teachings more than anything. There's this really underlying feeling of sharing these amazing teachings um, and how that kind of guides you as a person and as a mother. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about that because I feel like in the world as people, there's so many different religions and they all have beautiful aspects and they all guide us in some ways. But for some people like myself, I don't, I haven't grown up with a religious aspect. There's been, you know, you grow up with certain morals or ethics, but there's something for me when someone's talking about their spiritual practice or their religious practice and how it guides them that I I find really heart inspiring. So yeah, I'd love to hear from you about that. Okay. Well, uh, if anybody that knows Nigeria, it's it, Nigeria is quite big and it's quite divided. I'm from the north and the north is predominantly Muslim. And um, there are, you know, um, Christians as well from the north, but predominantly a lot of families are Muslims. You would find like there are some places that you will find um, traditional worshippers. We still do have people that worship in the traditional way. You would find Christians in the north and there are families that you find Muslims and Christians in the same family. Uh, I come from a very traditional family and my family is um, has been Muslim for as far back as you know i can i can so i was born into a muslim family and so i think some of our traditions and our cultures have in the north you find that there's a there's like a beautiful mix of tradition and because even the non-muslims we enter a house and we say salam alaikum and it's just the norm and so someone that isn't muslim but is from the north will probably say salam alaikum as well they walk around with a veil because that is the that is the culture, that is the atmosphere here. And so I was born a Muslim and I've been a Muslim. But I think that growing up, I was uh, I was a Muslim because I was just, that was how I am. That is how I was born. This is what my parents do. And um, sometime in uni, I decided to be a little bit more serious and okay, well, let's see, like, what what is this? And so I started reading more. I started, you know, noticing more. I started paying attention more. And I started becoming, I chose to be a Muslim. And that's when I, um, even though, you know, there's, we, re- we dress culturally as Muslims, um, it's not always, let's say, appropriately Muslim. And so, you know, I started, like, my clothes started changing. And then my dad, I would go home and say, what's going on? And, you know, and then I remember that I got to a point that I would wear socks. And my sisters, apparently, I found that I have two sisters. Apparently, they would call each other and say, she's wearing socks today. And, you know, there's all of this, like, <laughs> there was this small thing that was going on with it. And i like, okay, are we not Muslim enough for you? And suddenly, you're becoming this and you're becoming that. And all of that. But I think that what made it easier, what made it easy for me to um, choose to practice or to be or to embody the religion is that it made sense to me. I saw the structures and the way that, you know, the wisdom behind the, the layers in it and everything. And it just appealed to my my sense of order, my sense of logic and my reasoning. So it's, it's okay for me to be that and to live that. And it's interesting and yes, I, you know, I, I realized that, you know, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I'm not usually like, oh, I'm Muslim in your face because I don't think that I need to do that. I am Muslim in the way that I exist and in the teachings of the religion and in, in the things that is required of me. Uh, you know, we, we tend to be very 
performative sometimes and so uh, like even it would say that it's on your lips like it's on your tongue and it's not in your heart you're just um we're playing to the gallery and I, I don't know, it's just a part of me and the teachings and I'm trying to, you know, to do that, um, to expose that to the beauty of it. Also, uh, you know, we growing up, we went to like Madrasa or Islamia or places of learning and they used, they used to be so hard and, you know, they would, they would be malams and they would flog and they would cane and they would beat and, you know, just to pass knowledge and everything. And recently I put my child in an Islamia and... Uh, she was like, and I, I made it very clear that please don't touch my child. And so, you know, she, she came back home one day and she said, oh, mama, our, um, our malam, he's so rude. He's always beating people. I was like, did he hit you? And she said, no, but he's always hitting people. And I said, well, that's not okay because that's, that's, Allah wouldn't like that. And, you know, and I thought about it for a very long time and I eventually took her out of the school because I felt like that's not what our Islam is about. Our prophet was a very kind and compassionate man. And I do not want to confuse the message. I don't want you to, it's, I mean, you, no, it's not okay. It's not okay for, for Muslims to be hit when they're learning about their religion. If you cannot, even in teaching them, show them the beauty of the religion, then please give me back my child. I, I, I was teaching, even when I was teaching, part of the things I was teaching was Dean. And we used to have so much fun. And the children, even when you're teaching them, one of the beautiful things I was teaching is you're teaching them and they're teaching you back. So when we're talking about a prophet, for example, they give me so much insight, you know, from their own the way that they look at it, the way that they view it, I'm like, oh, you're actually right. That is true. I didn't think about that. Thank you for sharing with us. I mean, it's so beautiful and they can't see that and they're excited about it. So why, how is it possible that a man that, you know, knows the Quran more than me, that is supposed to embody it, can be so harsh with a child? How does it come out? And, you know, so yes, I took her out because I didn't think that, you know, it's wonderful that you have the knowledge, but it hasn't served you. And knowledge needs to serve you. You need to live by the knowledge. And so, yes, I'm trying, <laughs> flaws and all, to live yeah. by the knowledge. Yeah, I think we're all doing our best, but never um, perfect is an unattainable goal. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I, um, you know, because I hear it from other people too, like there's books, the Buddhism of motherhood or the yoga of motherhood, and it's like you can have a religion or a practice, a spiritual belief or practice, but until you become a mother especially, then you really, it's like, you do have that reflection back and being a teacher probably gave you that earlier working with children, but it's yes. like, it takes another level because everything you're doing is impacting this other child. So it's one thing to, you have the knowledge and the information, but then to embody that and have that reflected back to you as a child uh, from a child. And especially when it's your own child is it's even more um, of a deeper experience. Yes. Isn't it? it yeah. is. It is. And, and how have you I found think, that in motherhood with your own children? That choice that you had to make there was that was that um, empowering also to go well? Okay, this man has the knowledge, but I can I can take her out and I can still give her that experience and that knowledge myself. Yes, I, I find it empowering um, because luckily for me that was something that I did that was one of the rules when I was teaching that was something that I taught. So it's not I do feel like you know he has he has more knowledge than me or he does it better than me. It's it's like with the pronunciation of my name, you know, I mean, I feel like, you know, he's better at that, but I also do have my knowledge and I, I am willing to learn with my, with my children. I, I want to learn as well. I mean, it's not just getting them educated. It's also getting myself educated. So it works. It works out fine for me. It is quite empowering to take um, the knowledge of my knowledge and share it with my children. And I know because I wear the hijab, and so people are like, and um, sometimes, of course, children are imitators. They are great imitators. And I, I think I just wanted to. Sometimes, you know, I would go out and my daughter would choose to wear a hijab and she'd go out with me and they say, ah, you've started teaching her these things already. And I just smile because, you know, she's in the environment and she's trying to become, and she would try to, I don't force her to wear it. Nobody forced me to wear it. I chose to wear it my, by myself. And people ask me, what are you going to do? Are you going to force, um, is she going to wear it? And I said, I hope, I hope she does. I hope she finds a reason too. But that's, that's her choice because I know that when people make a choice about something, it makes it easier for them to stick with it. And there's all of this world over about liberating women and empowering them. And, and I feel liberated. I feel empowered. I do not feel like 
I am restricted, especially not because I wear a veil. Of course, in different places, I get different reactions. You know, some people are, are welcoming, are more trusting, whereas some people are more doubtful of me, are more suspicious. And I guess it comes with the charity and is, is a decision I've chosen to live with. But yeah, I am empowered by those things, by the decisions that I've made. And I think that I have, I have made fair decisions with my children and the way that I choose to live and to raise them. I have also, I am um, basically, I'm pro Montessori, just putting it out there. But like, I think one of the um, teaching methods that resonate the most with me is the Montessori method. And I think even in that, like, you know, I was saying, I was like, like, Montessori is an Islamic method because it embodies the things that Islam asks you to do, that demands of us, you know, respect for self, respect for environment, respect for plants, animals, like care of the world. Like that is what we're supposed to do as Muslims anyway. So this is fine with me. And luckily I found a Montessori school. I shipped them in. I homeschool as well for a while. I think I've made a lot of decisions with my children because I, home, I, I homeschooled. I mean, it's really vicious out there <laughs> and until you find the people that you, you share values with. And I feel like I can trust you because I, um, we're on the same path. And now my daughter's school, a lot of us make these decisions about putting our children in Islamic schools or like circular schools. And of course, there's a lot of pros and cons. And I've thought deeply and long about it. The school that my daughter goes to, it's not owned by Muslims. They're not Muslims. But I feel like their values are more Muslim to me than perhaps putting them in an Islamic school. And so, you know, I, those, those are the, those are, I guess, those are the choices I've had to make. And I honestly feel empowered by my choices. I'm thankful and grateful that I even have the choice to make and I am able to move into, into these spaces. Mm. Yeah, well, Def, thank you for sharing. It definitely comes across in what you share um, on social media. Like you seem very um, humble yet confident and empowered in what you share. And I'm so glad that you spoke about that because while it's changing to a large degree, I still think there's um, a lot of education that needs to happen around how people who are non-Muslim people uh, interpret a Muslim person because of what has happened in the media and what has happened politically and all of that stuff and bring it back to that is such a small portion of it. It's really that, that human to human aspect. And like you said, you found that in the Montessori teachings, which is so fascinating. I'm really interested in that as well. And um, yeah, and that it's a choice also. I think that's so good for people to hear that, yeah, it's something that you've chosen to and there's a reason why and there's those spiritual reasons why, but that's, yeah, you wear that out of like complete empowerment and choice. And really, if we look back, women have worn some sort of headscarf in most cultures for most of humanity, which is really interesting that now... Um, yeah, now it's such a, a big deal, and <laughs> um, it's in, I find the facet it's kind of this irony now with everyone wearing masks, obviously, for a very political reason. Have you found, is there an irony there for Muslim people? <laughs> Especially the women that wear the face covering, because yeah. like, oh, like Layla, B. I mean, Layla B wears a full face, the burqa, yeah, you know, yeah, and you know, and suddenly it's like. Oh, because I think someone was expressing earlier how, you know, with the mask, they're so liberated and you can still tell when they're smiling and their emotions and all of that. And the Muslim women are like, is that right? No, it's like, <laughs> like really? So if you can, I mean, you know, it's, sort of, it is, it's a huge bundle of irony because the Muslim women are like, hmm, interesting. Who would have thought, you know? I mean, suddenly it's, it's so liberating and it's, you can tell what people... I have friends that wear the face covering as well. And I can tell when they're smiling. It's never been a, you know, it's never been a thing of, so it's not, and when the world is fighting for the Muslim women and bashing and all of that, <laughs> like, I know that there are women that are oppressed and yeah. some of them are Muslim and some of them are not. I think the world over, there's, there's a culture of generally trampling on women and it's not an exclusively Muslim thing. It's a world culture thing and women need to be defended more. Women need to be protected more. It's not just Muslim women. You know, I, I, yeah, so. Yeah. It I'm, is very ironic. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad that you speak openly about that because I'm really, I'm quite, as I mentioned, I've got a friend who's um, Muslim and she wears, similar to you, just the, the hijab, the headscarf, mm -hmm. not the face covering and, 
Um, mm. Yeah, I've been fortunate to just through my work, I, you know, when I worked in the city, I worked with some beautiful Pakistani women also and, and just to learn more and, and to see that. And I, I just feel quite called to share that with the world, to kind of open people's ears and most people listening to this podcast I'm preaching to the converter but you know still put it out there and 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 come to our common humanity just like with the postpartum care it's really like that commonality there and then celebrating those differences and and really just opening our minds to those things that we might not necessarily understand um Mm -hmm. to learn from and to usually there's something to gain from if we feel a bit like balky at a certain concept or we're not sure. There's usually something really powerful there to learn. That's not necessarily what we would think it is. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. <laughs> um, yeah. Is there, so you were a teacher beforehand and do you see mm-hmm. yourself going back to teaching at all? No, not in the classroom. I don't see myself um, going back to the classroom, but I do think that even in my role, I am a teacher and I'm still a guide. I still identify myself as a teacher. I mean, yes, Lisa, I'm like, I'm a teacher. I like that. You know, I, I'm a teacher and um, it's just, I don't, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a supporter, I'm a guide. Even when I was teaching, you know, I, I also have these issues with education and how linear it is and how classroom oriented it is. Like, you know, we have to sit in desks and take learning and take classes and all of that. I honestly, um, and I'm, I'm in a few teacher forums and all of that. And I remember one time they said, um, define your teaching, your teaching, like define your, your teaching style and how you are as a teacher. And a lot of teachers define how they are and how they view it and how they want to communicate and uh, it took me a long time to answer that question and eventually I said I think that I am I don't I don't hope it's not offensive but I said I'm a gypsy teacher I don't belong in the classroom I'm I'm a world like I just I exist as a teacher and you know it, I, I travel and there's so much to learn and there's so much to see I'm a teacher and a student because in my whole life, I have been receiving lessons. Like the earth is my classroom and it teaches me and I receive and I share the knowledge I have and people teach me. And, you know, so yes, I, I, I have never left teaching. I am still a teacher and a supporter and a guide and a student as well. Mm. Yeah. And so your children are currently going to Montessori at the moment. Yes. Oh, yes, wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit about it? Cause I've only looked into it a little bit like I know a little bit about Steiner um mm. but yeah I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what that Montessori framework is for children as you know I've started homeschooling because of a few mm. reasons yeah I've started so I enrolled my eldest into the first grade of primary school mm. which is called kindergarten here but called grade one mm. mostly everywhere mm-hmm. else and um yes yeah. yeah, so it's the first year of primary school and and then lockdown happened and then we were home and then I just didn't feel right to send her back to that environment, even though there was nothing really wrong with the classroom per se, but it's just those structures. And I wish I had a Montessori school to choose from. So as a homeschooling parent now, <laughs> I'm looking at different styles. So I'd love to hear a little bit about Montessori. Um, so Montessori, so you know, I, I won't go into the lecture of Maria Montessori and all of these things, but I think that the story of it is very interesting because she was um, left to these children that were basically societal write-offs and um, she stayed with the children and she observed the children. And it is out of, her, out of the need of the children that she developed the, the, the system. And so I think that in all of the methods that, that um, education, what, what, how, I def- how I define education, Nigerian education is something else entirely because we have taken from so many systems and you have British, British curriculum schools in Nigeria, you have American curriculum schools in Nigeria. Nigerian curriculum is a mess, but you know that um, the whole point of that education is to basically produce workers to produce people that are going to offices and factories and you know basically mass produce people but Montessori I feel like 
it, it's very personal because I mean, those things, I wouldn't say they don't consider the needs of the child. They, yeah, they just want to produce functional people in society, machines, basically. But Montessori produces individuals as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think that Montessori, the way I envision it is like a big cloth, right? And everybody takes out of this cloth and makes what is suitable for them. Montessori allows you to bloom as a person. Now, I was dabbling with Montessori, even as a teacher, I, I am trained in the British curriculum, in the British um, EYFS and, you know, all of that. But I learned, I started um, observing Montessori on my own and I eventually got some certification. But uh, what Montessori, and what I can tell the difference is that, you know, British curriculum, for example, um, uses a bit of Montessori especially for the early years, but it made it British. Like a lot of systems take education and of course own it and make it their own because they want patriotism to come from that as well. Montessori is not patriotic. The only um, nationality Montessori has is the child. It tends to the needs of the child. And the first time I was so lucky and fortunate and blessed. Like I have a whole community online because one time there's um, a lady, of course, that I also interact with. And I was telling her, you know, we're talking and she's Nigerian and she's in Lagos. And so we're talking about, you know, education and all of that. And she's like, oh, there's a lady that's opening a Montessori school in Abuja. You should check her out. Like she's, it's a for real, for real Montessori. I was like, no, because I know there's a lot of shams in education. And it's so sad. People are not very um, enlightened you know people pay a lot of money for what is supposed to be quality education but is not and so you know she said you should check her out I said okay and then I went and I couldn't leave <laughs> and you know I like and it, and it transform is transforming my children and it's transforming me in the way that I interact to them in the way that you know it honors them the first time we were in the classroom with my daughter she gravitated to practical life and you know Montessori believes that it starts with practical like you know in the kitchen and all of those things and even in that you have language and you have science and you have math you're cooking you're cleaning you're seeing cause and effect if something spills you know you clean it up the child is empowered they're they're made to feel like they're they're human you know, they're valued. And, you know, you see in the, in the way that the days are run and in the way that their programs are run, sometimes, I mean, there's a child that likes math. And in, in school systems, you have this period for math and it's like 30 minutes. And when it's over, it's like, let's move to the next thing. But you see children following their interests. And the amazing thing about it is that everything is so entwined and connected. I really love, I feel there is a connection with everything. And I like how connected Montessori is because even when you're cooking, there's math, there's science, there's language, you know, you're avoiding math, but it's, it presents itself in so many different ways. I, you know, it allows you to draw in that interest to, you know, just observe it and learn it, but still be able to survive with it. A lot of people will say, I've never used algebra all my life. Like, you know, you just use it in the classroom and you don't, but I mean, in Montessori, it bring it makes it real life. It's, it's knowledge for life. I think it just teaches you to be a human and to find your path. Not, it doesn't mass produce you. I see, like, you know, the way that my children think, the way that they speak sometimes. Children are largely the same, but then their opportunities are different. And the opportunities that they have shapes who they become or who they are. So, yeah, I think Montessori is beautiful. I, I really hope that you explore it and consider it for your children. And um, I think you guys are going to have fun. You're, they're, they're going to teach you. You're going to teach them. And you're going to learn together. And it's going to transform you. It's going to transform your relationship with them. And it's going to transform the way that you look at the world. It's, she was a very simple woman. But, you know, it, it, simplicity does not mean that it was, it, she wasn't complex. She, she simplified the complexity of the human nature. And she met the needs of the children and she honored them. And I really like that, that the needs of the children are met and honored. Mm, so, yeah. I, I hope that is useful. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's good because because as I kind of embark on this journey of homeschooling, there's a lot of um, kind of unschooling myself and trusting in that process of we're not sitting yes. down and necessarily doing maths and then doing writing. And, and you know, I we are in the garden and cooking and then, we're out and doing those practical things and sort of trusting in the learning that happens with that and the really amazing conversations and questions that 
can emerge and flow and yeah but then of course there's times where you think oh I'm not getting this right and that whole mother conversation that comes about and you're like oh, you know I'm not I'm the not competition yeah. <laughs> so um, it's yeah it's I you know it's just you know honestly you have to yeah, keep checking in with you to make sure that I know you're doing the right because the other children, a friend will come to me and she'll say, My child can, can count once a million. And I will look and I say, Oh my goodness, my daughter is struggling to count. I you know there's all of these like tests and all of these things. And I had to say, You know what? Like, yeah, my daughter probably can't do that. And I'm not bothered about it because I know that she can do many other things. And for me, that's not the goal. I, it's not for her to pass exams. It's for her to be a complete human. And so I have to check in with myself. Like what are five-year-olds doing right now? What are six-year-olds? Oh goodness, they're writing letters and, and you know, like and, I'm, and dissections. And I'm like, oh my goodness, is my child behind? I hope she's not behind. You know, all of these fears, they also come up as well. Cause you're like, I hope I'm making the right decision. But really when I think about it, it sits very well with my soul. And I know that they're learning. And what is it? Impulsively, you see the knowledge that they have. Sometimes it comes up and you're like, oh, okay. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that checking in, especially because we have children in a similar age, they're so young, like five. She's at, she's six soon, but she's five. Like, does it really matter? Like she can't, we sat down today and I was like, it's a rainy day. And I was like, well, in the afternoon I was like well let's sit down and we'll write out the you know she still remembers how to write the alphabet and we're doing it and she knows the sounds but she's actually not overly interested in it yet and of course I'm and then I thought I'm just going to feel this out for the next year or so and we'll keep working on it slowly but I just have this feeling that around seven which is a very they sp- bloom. yeah they say in Steiner as well um that and I saw an interesting thing to jump a little bit about the kids' hands and how they develop differently. And by seven, they've changed to be able to hold a pencil better. And but I just feel like around seven, she's going to get much more interested in reading and writing. And for now, it's just continually doing these little bits of steps. She's five. Oh my goodness, she's got a whole life to sit down and read and write. But she wants to play and play Lego and jump around and ask questions. And, Really, they're just five. I mean, it's it's honestly heartbreaking because there is so much expectations. Let them play. And I remember, like, in when we're leaving uni, and somebody said, "Ah, I'm finally done. I'm never going to even read a signboard." You know, and I mean, like, is that it? We're lifelong learners. We should, you know, we shouldn't just be in the system to get out and to. I I really want them to see learning as a lifelong venture. And I think that with the way that schools are set up with this strict routines and everything, it makes it difficult. It makes it, it makes them just want to do it and get over with it and move on with their lives when learning is, is lifelong. It's lifelong. Yeah. I know someone in particular and I keep reading more and more stories, but I know this person's, um, personally, not really well, but well enough that I've heard the story that um, he's a local and he was homeschooled and his father especially would teach him. And the way they would learn was practically they were out in the land and they would learn, you know, how to fix an engine or they would learn how to build a cubby or to build this or to do these things, to fix things. And he then went to high school in the mainstream schooling, but was homeschooled for uh, um, yeah, all of his primary schools, so the first seven years, maybe even the first eight or nine years. Then he went on to university and his lecturer was just always astounded. He studied engineering and he's gone on to have these really amazing engineering jobs. And his lecture was like the way you think is um, holistic. Everything's integrated. So you haven't compartmentalized maths with physics. So it was a totally way this holistic way of thinking and he blitzed it and excelled because of that. And I keep hearing these stories about people that have had alternative schooling going on and they were far from behind. In fact, they could pick up these concepts so much faster and in a different way. Yes. Yes. There's nothing that beats what you see in real life. You know, and I mean, these concepts almost seem very, 
um, abstract, you know, the fact that you can envision them and see them happening in real life and see how something can work. I mean, I think that is a, that is a different gift. So yes, they are definitely, I don't think that any, any of them struggle in, in life because yeah. they have the tools, they, they live holistically and they're able to adapt. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Rama, it's been so lovely connecting and inspiring. Mm-hmm. Was that a rooster I could hear in the background? Yes. <laughs> yes. It, yeah. oh, there it is. Again. It's morning. <laughs> I've got chickens here too, but I can't have roosters here anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, my, my neighbors have a farm and like my daughter is invested in the farm. We are staying in an apartment, so we're upstairs and then downstairs. And she knows about every new birth and every new baby. And you know, yesterday I heard her telling the neighbor in the over the window. She said, "Oh, there's some eggs over on that side." And the lady said, "Oh, really? Thank you." <laughs> so so, yeah. oh, I love it. I volunteered her to the farm to be a farmhand. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed that chat and. Yeah, I can't wait to Thank follow you, you for having me. Said, especially as you delve into the innate postpartum care training with Rochelle. And I um, might even have you on down the track after you finish the training to talk about that a bit more. <laughs> I feel okay. like we could chat forever. Thank you. I think so too. <laughs> Honestly, I was very nervous. I'm like, oh my goodness. But I, yes, it, this feels nice. This feels nice. Thank you for having me. I'm honoured to be here. I, 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 I really enjoyed this chat. I love you so dearly and I love you so clearly Will I wake you up in the morning so early just to tell you I got the wandering blues Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that. As always, we'd love for you to contact us and share any ideas you have for future podcasts and to share that with friends and family or anyone who might get something from the podcast. Leaving a review on iTunes is really helpful as well because it helps us uh, be seen and share what we're passionate about more. Thank you.